they're pulling a, uh, a DNA report off of a gas chromatograph. That's not even the right machine. You know, we were getting like that. <laughs> plastic, plastic gas. Yeah. Hello, I'm Justin. I'm Mark. We're the J-Pops. And we are attempting parenting in Japan. Welcome to episode 29. Today, we have our fourth ever J-Pops guest. And so because of that, we're going to bypass some of our regular updates and other segments and just get straight into the interview with him. So Justin, who is he? Well, our guest today is Brian Waters. And how best to sum up this guy? Um, Some of you might know him as Japan's foremost podcast guest. He's been around the block there, certainly. Um, You might have heard him on Japan by River Cruise or Ishikawa Summit to Sea. Um, professionally, Brian is an assistant professor in the Department of Forensic Medicine with Fukuoka University's Faculty of Medicine. Um, and in that job, he does a lot of toxicology analysis. Um, so he's often in the autopsy room, which is just a crazy interesting job to have. And between autopsies, he's a father of two here in Japan. Um, Brian's experience is interesting to us because he himself is Japanese American, just like our kids are. So he can give us the adult's perspective on sort of what's in store for our mixed race kids. And Brian's kids themselves are three-fourths Japanese, which we were also interested to ask him about. So without further ado, let's talk to our guest, Dr. Brian Waters. Hi, Brian. Welcome. All right. Hey. Welcome to the show. Nice to be on with you guys. Thank you so much for for having me. I'm very honored. Likewise, you are an official J-pop, of course. You've got a couple of kids. Yes, I do. And um, you're by far our most qualified guest, I think, in that your kids are the (laughs) oldest. So you've got a combined 30 years parenting experience when you add up your kids, right? That's right. Yeah. My son uh, is 16, going to be 17 in July, and my daughter is 14, so... My son is a uh, second-year high school student, and my daughter is a third-year junior high student. But that doesn't make me more qualified or less qualified. That just means <laughs> I'm older. <laughs> well, experience speaks volumes. <laughs> um, how about uh, their upbringing? Um, I know you told me before they weren't born in Japan, were they? No, that's right. They were both born in California, and um, we lived uh, in California until my son was five and my daughter was three. And then Hmm. um, I got the job that I've got now and we moved here uh, at that time. So that was right about, that was right on the cusp of where we were like, okay, maybe it's too late. Maybe we should just stay in the United States and not think about moving back because the kids were fully into school and getting, you know, a good solid base of friends and activities and stuff like that. So anything beyond that would have made moving a little bit harder. And so Mm. this was kind of like when I got the job offer at the university, I was like, all right, this is it. If I say yes to this, then this is kind of probably going to be our last chance, you know, to make this kind of move. Mm. And so we decided to do it. Yeah. What was the motivation to move? Was it purely the pursuit of the job or had you been sort of in the back of your mind hoping to move for a while and then the job was just um, what? got the ball officially rolling on it? Yeah, I was on the JET program um, shortly after, well, right after I graduated from college. And um, that's where I met my wife. And then I went back to the United States for grad school and then started working. But the whole time I was like, I would love to move back to Japan. I mean, I loved Mm. it so much when I was there. And, you know, my wife's Japanese and I'm half Japanese. So it was like, you know, if the opportunity was right, then, you know, I was kind of just looking and not really actively seeking, but just kind of putting feelers out there. And then um, kind of out of the blue, I got this job offer. So um, we kind of jumped on it. In terms of specifics, I mean, sometimes people live in Japan and they're just overwhelmed by like the sense of safety or, you know, just drawing comparisons directly to the U.S. Um, something that you might like about how the society structured, say, like the healthcare or 
uh, any number of things like that. So was anything as specific as that in mind? Or did you just generally sort of like the lifestyle in Japan? Yeah, you know, I'm asked this question a lot. And um, all the things you mentioned, the healthcare, the safety, you know, no guns, all that kind of stuff. That's all part of it, of course. But I got to say that it's really kind of an ethereal, like feeling in your gut type mm. of thing. Like when I first came to Japan, like I'm half Japanese, but my mom never brought me here. When I was uh, when I was growing up, I mean, she brought me when I was a baby. So the first time I really stepped foot on, um, you know, Japanese soil where I could uh, remember it was I did a year of study abroad while I was in college mm-hmm. um, in Nagoya. And the moment I stepped off the plane, it was like, OK, this is there's something different here. There's something mm-hmm. I feel some kind of like deep rooted connection that I can't really explain. It was really weird. Mm. And, um, and so that, that whole first, that whole year of study abroad, and I had never really, you know, thought in my mind before that, you know, I could live in Japan for a long time or do anything like that. That whole year was just so great and so fun and everyone was so nice and everything. And I just felt a real connection to, to uh, this country. And then when I went back to finish my undergrad degree, it was just like that the whole time I was like, all right, how could I go back to Japan? What could I do? Could I? Um, and then, you know, the JET program is like a perfect opportunity if you want to spend time in Japan, not really have too much responsibility and just kind of, you know, make money and have the um, ability to kind of move around and see the country a little bit. Hmm. And so that always stayed with me, you know, even from from that time. That upbringing. um it leads to a lot of things that Mark and I talk about pretty frequently. Um, the first one that jumps to mind is that, uh, you know, Mark and I just had these babies and these kids are uh, mixed race, biracial half, like however you want to refer to them. Um, and you've grown up with that in two different cultures, I guess. Well, yeah. grew up with it in the U.S. and then experienced it as you were a bit older in Japan. And um, I wonder if that uh, from your experience was it markedly different to live in one culture as a mixed race person than to live in the other culture as a mixed race person? Well, yeah, it is. It's, it's totally different. Mm-hmm. So, and it's, it's even different when you, when you're living as a half Japanese person in North Carolina, where I grew up versus California, where I lived for 11 years. And of course it is in Japan because it's, it's different because the people around you are different. Mm-hmm. So when I lived in North Carolina growing up in the, you know, in the mid-70s and 80s, uh, there weren't a lot of Asians around at the time. And um, I looked a lot more Asian looking than I do now when I was younger. And so, you know, you would just get people coming straight up to you and saying, hey, are you from China? And I'm <laughs> like, no, I'm from, I was born here and, you know, I you know, speak perfect English and all that. And yeah. then, you know, you go to California and there's a lot of Asians around in California, Chinese people and Vietnamese people and Koreans and, and Japanese people. And so uh, everyone's used to it. But, you know, most uh, people stay in their kind of communities. So there's, you know, there's Chinese neighborhood, there's a Vietnamese neighborhood and they and they kind of mingle amongst themselves almost. Hmm. But there are a lot of half kids and, um, you know, half adults rolling around. It's funny because, you know, growing up half and then, you know, spending time on the coasts and in Japan, I can usually, it's like, it's almost like gaydar, except for half people, half it's like half dar, I guess. <laughs> you can, I can like spot them and be like, oh, that, guy, that person's half, that person's half Asian. I'd be like, hey, are you, are you half? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, me, yeah, me too, me too, yeah. I, I kind of saw you across the room, I knew, I kind of felt it. Yeah, and then when you come here, it's, it's totally opposite because, you know, the Japanese is such a homogenous community. Mm-hmm. That if you look anything but you know full Japanese, they're gonna think you're com- you're completely foreign. So mm-hmm. if when I tell Japanese people, yeah, I'm actually half, they're like surprised. They're like, what, really? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, my, my mother's Japanese, and they, and they're just like, they just can't believe it. And then I say, well, you know, my hair's dark and my eyes are brown and it's just same as you, you know. <laughs> and, and then, but the amazing thing and the fr- and the thing that I noticed that was kind of uh, it was really fantastic. It was really, it really felt good to me. Was the moment that a Japanese person realizes that I'm half, it almost makes me closer to them. Like they almost feel like they mm. can be, you know, more open with me and be more, you know, like a part of of their life or whatever. Mm. And so that I, I've seen that I've seen that happen so many times. You've 
I'll be like, um, you know, at a conference or something and, you know, someone will be not standoffish, but like shy. Mm -hmm. And then I'll finally talk to them or somehow we're in the same, you know, group of people talking and then they find out I'm half. And then all of a sudden they're just like, I can't stop them from talking to me. You know, it's, Mm, it's like, it's almost like it adds some kind of pull. When you were growing up in the States then, were you, was your household like in in Japanese? No, not at all. Is your Japanese level now like native where pe- when people hear you speak, they're like, oh, I can hear this guy's been here for a long time. Or is it the other way? Like I can hear this guy's not from here. Yeah, I think um, my Japanese is certainly not native. Um, my Japanese is good enough to where if someone who doesn't speak Japanese heard me speaking Japanese, they would think I'm native. They would think I'm completely oh, okay. fluent. But when I'm speaking to a Japanese person in Japan, uh, they can tell pretty quick that I'm not native, but that I'm, you know, I'm good enough to have a, a you know, a normal conversation okay. with. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if that would that like brought the the barrier down for them a little bit and like helped just having the language more accessible. It absolutely does. Knowing knowing Japanese, whether you're half Japanese or not, mm. uh, knowing the language does bring the barrier down. But I'm talking about even before I you know, spoke Japanese to any kind of high degree, uh, when oh. I met people and told them that, oh, yeah, my mother's Japanese, it was just like an automatic. Oh, I see. It was an automatic lowering of the the, obstruct, <laughs> the obstruction, you know. It was kind of like, you know, um, you know, if like there's a fence and I'm kind of looking over it with my eyes, <laughs> I mention I'm half Japanese and boom, it just goes down to like waist level or something. That was the other big thing that Mark and I talk about pretty frequently here is um, raising your kid with the language environment of English or Japanese or both, or do you do inside the house versus outside the house and so on and so on. Um, you've got experience from both directions because as a kid, um, you would have been raised with the Japanese mm-hmm. speaker as a parent. Uh, and then you as a parent, as an English speaker, raising these two kids, uh, you've had a lot of language options uh, from both sides of the coin. So what about first when you were a kid? Uh, you said that there was no Japanese in the house? Well, yeah, I mean, um, my mom, the only time she spoke Japanese to us when is when she got angry and she couldn't like really like kind mm. of communicate in English to the level mm-hmm. that she wants. And so I knew those words, like, you know, <laughs> those, those words when, when she got upset and she needed us to, to do something. But, um, you know, that was the, I was born in 75. And so I think probably the education about raising kids as bilingual or having two languages mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, it wasn't well known mm-hmm. at the time. So they were kind of like, let's not confuse the kids. Let's just speak one language in my in mm-hmm. the house. And my dad doesn't speak any Japanese. And so mm-hmm. uh, that was pr- that was pretty much it. Now, I heard her like on the phone with her friends or, you know, talking. Sometimes we'd have like Japanese people come over to visit mm-hmm. or whatever, and they would be talking in Japanese. And then my mom played Anka oh, all yeah. the time in the house, you know, nice. on the radio. I mean, on the cassette player or whatever. So I heard that. And, you know, I, I do think it gave me kind of an ear for the sounds mm-hmm. um, in the Japanese language. Because a lot of people have told me and my teachers told me when I was studying Japanese in college and after college that I have I have a ability to kind of mimic the Japanese way of speaking very easily. But, but I think that's probably part of it. Um, my sister, who, who's a couple years older than me, she, um, she didn't study Japanese at all. She didn't study it in college or anything. She didn't do like study abroad or anything. And so... Her Japanese isn't very good, hmm. uh, so I don't know if she were if she were to have studied it hard. I don't know um, what her Japanese would sound like. Well, when you were a child, could you string a sentence together, or were, was it just more passive? You could just pick up on bits of you know vocab here and there when your mother spoke it. Yeah, no, I couldn't. I couldn't put a sentence together. I couldn't say. I mean, I could. You know, I couldn't do my self introduction or mm-hmm. anything like that. It just what it really wasn't like a. It really wasn't a thought. Mm. It wasn't like my parents didn't think, they certainly didn't think I'd be living in Japan yeah. for <laughs> any long period of time or anything like that. So so it, it, it never really was. It was just kind of like this thing. Like I was always interested in Japanese culture and Japanese food, always loved Japanese food. And, hmm. and you know, like when Nomo came over and played, you know, you know, for the Dodgers, I was like a big Nomo fan just, just because, of, because of the fact he was Japanese and stuff. But no, language was never really, you know, an interest of mine, even until 
I mean, literally, like, I was a sophomore in college and had some free electives. And I was like, I'll just take Japanese. <laughs> I mean, what could it hurt, well. you know? And and I started taking it, yeah. What about with your own kids who are three-fourths Japanese? And uh, as you said, they were raised in California just for the first few years, like, say, before elementary school. Um, now you're on the other side of the world, and it's up to you to impart that English to those kids. So what has that been like? Well, you know, like um, the best laid plans of my, <laughs> you know, of mice and men often go awry. No, when we lived in California, there are a lot of Japanese people in California. There are, there are even like Japanese, not kindergarten, but before kindergarten, like hoikuen, mm-hmm. like oh, um, yeah, the preschool, a daycare classes. or preschool, preschool, yeah, preschool, Japanese preschool. And you can, um, and a lot of like uh, Japanese businessmen who live in California, mm-hmm. they will, you know, put their kids in there just to keep up their Japanese ability. So when they eventually, you know, return to Japan. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of half kids in there and stuff like that. So we put our kids in, um, into those uh, Japanese preschools uh, when they were young. And, and so they were able to hear native Japanese, not only from their mother, but from the teachers at that school and the other um, kids that were there. And I was working full time and my wife was in the house full time and she was speaking to them, you know, 24 seven full time in, in, in Japanese. Mm. So their Japanese was good, but of course living in America and, and the TV being all in English. And when mm. I come home, I speak only English to them. Their English was really good. Mm. And so like my son at five, I mean, his dominant language was English. And his Japanese was really good. And when we decided to move to Japan, we were like, okay, we're going to do our best to keep their English up. So, <laughs> Brian, you only speak English to them, you know, and then on the weekends, we'll, you'll have a little English class and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and man, it just, it fell apart so fast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like, I mean, y- you really, really have to make it a priority. Right. It can't just be, all right, do your best to do this. I mean, it, it has to be a conscious effort. Mm. So my advice to you guys is never, ever speak Japanese to your children, ever. <laughs> like, you know, as good, even if your Japanese becomes, you know, top-notch, fluent, Bobby Judo-esque, mm. you know, don't spit a word of Japanese at them. Mm. And and when they when they, you know, inevitably they will speak Japanese to you because right. it's easier for them or that's just, you know, some things are easier to say in Japanese. Just feign ignorance. What? Please say it in mm. English. Mm-hmm. Because the moment that they know that you speak Japanese and kids are smart and even young kids, they'll they'll know as soon as like, for example, if you're having right. a conversation with the, your wife and she's speaking Japanese and you're nodding and understanding and, and giving correct responses, they'll know right then, oh, dad understands Japanese. That means I don't have to speak English to him. Mm-hmm. That's my uh, advice. It's just like, uh, yeah, keep your Japanese knowledge like at level zero inside the house and with your kids. That'll be pretty easy for me. And... <laughs> Mark's more than meeting you halfway on that advice. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm staying at level zero. <laughs> We've got a bit of a weird situation coming up. We're really trying to get to the U.S. for several months. Um, you know, while we're doing childcare leave. So now it's all English in the house. Uh, sort of our thinking is we've got the Japanese outside world here where he'll get all of his mm. Japanese through grandparents and preschool and things like that. So we're trying to stick mostly to English inside the house. Um, but then when we go to America, if we were to do like six months there, I think I'm going to have to switch gears and it's going to be Japanese in the house in America. And then hmm. we'll come back and then we'll switch to English in the house, which is a challenge for me to begin with. But then secondly, I think my kid's going to be suspicious of me for the rest of his life. You're like, wait a minute. Wait, but he's so young. Would it would it be beneficial to actually switch to Japanese when you're over there? I think so. Just because if it does go on for, say, six months or something, you know, you don't want to have him just only English for that time, maybe give him a bit of Japanese exposure. I don't know, but maybe full immersion hmm. the whole time could be the way. When he comes back, though, he'll have no idea what his grandparents are talking about, things like that. So, um, Well, he is only one. He, he will be only one, so <laughs> no big deal. 
Well, I think, you know, the the great thing about this show and what you guys do is you guys are so good at researching, like, every little aspect. I mean, like, I, I swear to God, I wish I had, I wish I could go back in time and have your podcast when, when my kids were just born. Wow. Or maybe, you know, I was even like, you know, maybe we should have another kid just so you know, <laughs> No, that was, well, that, you, that wouldn't go. Over thank so you for saying that, though. <laughs> now that the resource is available, but what I'm saying is, you should really, because um, I think there's a lot of research on this about, like, for example, uh, if you're a native English speaker, mm. you should only speak English to your children, mm. and your wife is a native Japanese speaker should only speak Japanese. There are some people that believe that. Like, I'm not sure if that's. Uh, if there's research on that, that that's the better way to go. Mm. I will say this. If your wife spends more time with your kids just because of work or right. whatever issues, and so you become your time with the kids becomes less than her time with them, then the Japanese is going to take over as the dominant mm. language. That plus, you know, just Japanese everywhere here on TV and what mm, have you. Right. And so if I could do it over again... I would probably tell my wife, look, it's, it can't just be me because I'm only home from, you know, like, right. you know, 7 p.m. till, you know, 7 a.m. the next mm. morning. So uh, you're going to have to also speak English inside the house. Mm. I'm going to speak English inside the house. And, you know, when they speak Japanese, so we're just like, well, what are you talking about? Mm. That's kind of what we're thinking in our house. Like, keep this the English zone. And then they go out into the Japanese world. And hopefully that helps, I think. Just from the other people we've talked to, like having one do Japanese, one do in English, like eventually the kids, like, they're like, all right, well, I'll just go to mom. She speaks Japanese. That's kind of what happened to us. Uh, it's At some point, if I was, if I were only to speak English to my kids and just be like, okay, you have to speak English with me. All right, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk to you until, unless you speak English. Then they just wouldn't talk to me. It would be, <laughs> it would be that simple. It would be like, be like, oh, I have to speak English when I talk to dad. All right, I'm just, I'm just going to talk to mom. It's an easy out. <laughs> Don't have to talk to dad at all. Yeah. We had a couple of, a bunch of friends over with their kids, their teenage kids over a couple of weeks ago. And the dad speaks only English. The mom speaks Japanese. And the daughter she was really bored in the house. So the mom was like, Oh, go to Mark. You know, he has a bunch of board games. He'll play with you. And her response was no. Cause then I'll have to speak English. And it was, I think that happens the same with her dad as well. Sometimes like he gets the, the silent treatment and she just goes to mom. Cause she'd just rather not deal with English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm kind of afraid of that. <laughs> no, it, it's going to happen. You, <laughs> be afraid of it. It's going to happen. Be ready for it. I mean, at some point, whether or not whether or not they speak they speak perfect English or per, and you speak perfect Japanese, there will come a time when your kids just don't want anything to do with you. I mean, it's just it's it's a sad reality. That's just called teenagehood, right? Way of life. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, speaking of your kids, uh, we've touched on it a bit earlier, but uh, the word half is used in Japan to mean a mixed race person. And uh, first of all, I wanted to get your take on the sort of vocabulary around this sort of thing, like biracial, mixed race, half, do any of these words strike you as better than others or any of them more offensive than others or something? Are you basically fine with them? And then kind of a second question is uh, your kids are uh, double half. I don't know if that's the right word, but your kids are (laughs) three quarters. And I wondered, no, (laughs) not at all. No, no son or something. What would they call? Uh, so, uh, is there vocabulary for that? And um, uh, is yeah, how how are they perceived in the in the three fourths mold? Right. So, um, I'll start by talking about my own you know philosophy about the whole thing. Uh, growing up in North Carolina, when there's not where there weren't a lot of Asians, and there weren't a lot of you know half Asians, and you know. Kids are mean, and then you know they'll pick on you for anything. So anything that's a little bit different, they'll kind of glom onto that. But personally, I've always found that my Japanese heritage was a source of pride mm-hmm. for me. So if people wanted to, you know, point that out, you know, or make it, you know, like kind of a, a divisive issue, I always kind of s- steered into the skid. I would be like, "Yeah, I'm half Japanese, so what?" And like, um, and the word "half," I think it, I think it's much more like divisive in america than it is here Mm -hmm. in japan Mm -hmm. 
and it's a lot more divisive amongst from what from my experience it's a much more divisive of white people mm-hmm. than it is among people that are actually mm-hmm. half like i rarely meet someone who's half who has a real real problem with the mm-hmm. word half uh, there are, i i have met people who are from the united states and were raised kind of in the midwest and they had a hard you know childhood and were you know kind of bullied and stuff like that and they don't like the word half and they make it known and that's fine uh, for that individual is fine but for me um it never really was an issue it never became something where you know someone was beating me up as they were yelling the word mm-hmm. half or anything like that right. <laughs> that that's never happened and i've, I've kind of i have kind of a philosophy about this uh, the more energy you give it mm-hmm. like the more like stigma that you place mm-hmm. around it it's just going to make it worse. It's mm-hmm. going to make it, it's going to make you feel weird about it. It's going to make you feel bad about it. And so my kind of philosophy is if you just don't give it any energy, then it's not going to take over your life or anything like that. Now the word hafu in Japan, it's literally di- different in that even though it comes from the English word half, mm-hmm. uh, it's specific to you know, to talk about someone who's half something mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Like I was just, uh, you know, talking to my wife um, about it earlier today because I, I knew I was going to talk about it. When you say hafu, you mean one parent is Japanese and the other parent is something else. Mm-hmm. And the half means something else. So you're asking me what do you say when a child is three quarters Japanese? Mm-hmm. They're called kota. Oh, really? Yeah. One quarter. Mm-hmm. Kota. Quarter, something else. So three-fourths Japanese, quarter something else. So the, the reference is to the something else. Mm, I see. And to me, um, saying the word hafu or saying kota or whatever, is just it's just a vocabulary. It's just a description. Mm-hmm. It's like saying someone, to me, to me, and of course I can only speak for myself, but, but to me it's, like, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just a descriptor. It's, just, it's like saying someone has blonde hair or someone's tall. And... Um, it's funny, like Twitter is kind of a, um, a cesspool anyway, but <laughs> a lot of people on Twitter, when I, when I use the word half, uh, even when I'm referring to myself, um, I've gotten flack on it. And then kind of, and I tend not to push a lot on Twitter because it only ends badly. <laughs> but a lot of times these are white people who have, <laughs> sometimes they do have kids that are half and they're kind of, mm. they're defending them or, or what have you. But I'm like, listen, I'm talking about myself. Mm. You know, if you're just, if you're a white guy and you want to tell someone who's half mm. how they should, you know, use that word, uh, you know, and with with regards to themselves, I think you need to stop and think about that for a second. <laughs> mm. But anyway, people are passionate about it, and so yeah. I tend not to push it all that that hard. When I was uh, living here back in the late '90s, um, there was a a big push to use the word double Mm. right instead of half for specifically for half japanese kids and the katakana for double is double now double is fine it's it's a word it sounds a lot like w like the letter w and not a lot of japanese people know when you say double that you're talking about someone's you know double the culture or or whatever so it just takes it may, it's confusing. It takes more time to explain it, mm. and then and if you get all out bent out of shape about it, I'm telling you, it's just going to make you feel bad. Yeah, it's just not going to be a happy time. And so I tend to just you know kind of go with the flow. Less energy, the better. And there's going to come a point in your children's lives when uh, someone points out or they realize that they're not like everyone else. You mm. know? And when that point comes up, at that point, you can sit them down and talk to them about, you know, yeah, what it is and how great it is to be unique, yeah, and how great it is to have, you know, dad from a different country as mom, yeah. and you've got a bigger, better Christmas and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I yeah. think at that point, you can kind of sit down and kind of talk them through it, and then I can tell you this with, of course. I always have to preface that it's just my experience, but my kids have not had 
And of course, when they're, they're three quarters Japanese, they look pretty much Japanese. Mm. I mean, if you if you saw them and you didn't know what their name was and you didn't see me next to them, you would think they were just Japanese kids. But even that, even that, the fact that their last name is Waters, which is my last name, and they go th- through life with uh, a katakana last name, it hasn't become an issue at all. Hmm. They, they've never been bullied. They have friends. It's, it just hasn't been an issue. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like as our kids grow, they're going to look to us to understand who they are a lot of ways. And if we start getting bent out of shape when we start hearing people say half, they're going to see a negative self-image come from that. So when people call them half, they're going to be like, oh, that that's bad because my dad thinks that's bad. So I think it's a it's a good point that you're saying that like you shouldn't look at it in a bad way. It should be something that you just embrace and just it's a descriptor. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, some people have different philosophies on it. And look, you guys are going to develop your own philosophy on it, mm-hmm. you know, depending on, you know, what happens with your own children. I think um, like, for example, Bobby, Bobby Judah, who you've had on the podcast, mm. he has um, two beautiful daughters and I think he has, is on the record of not being in favor of that word, and you know that's fine if that's mm. if that's what works for them, and that that's what works for him. But in my experience, um, just the more energy, the more kind of the more worked up about it, you don't want them to get a complex over it for sure. You know, right? Just uh, you know, so regardless of you know what word people use about them, or you know, if they're, like I said, if they're throwing dirt on them and kicking them and yelling <laughs> the word have to, that's a problem. <laughs> right. But this is definitely going to happen to you, 100%. You're walking your kid in the stroller. Some lovely old grandma is going to come up. If it hasn't happened oh, already, it will. It's already happened. Like, they're going to be like, oh, look at the beautiful half child. Oh, half, ki- half kids are so beautiful, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And if you choose to get angry and upset about that and to correct her, that's just for, – for some reason that just – I just think that that's – it's just too much. It's like, mm-hmm. come on, man. She's trying to give you a compliment. She's trying to she's trying to get closer to you and your family mm-hmm. by complimenting your children. So that's kind of my philosophy on it. But Yeah, it's, yeah that makes sense. It's really good to appreciate intention above all else. Uh, mm. this sort of thing probably and like in the case of that lady her intention is 100 percent positive so it seems great to take it as 100 percent positive and you know just go with the flow as you're saying yeah i agree with that 100 percent. i'm gonna shift directions a little bit here because we would be remiss if we didn't get into your job a little bit brian so you've got a very interesting job so um i wondered if you would just explain a bit of your uh, maybe your education and then uh, how that led into your current job. All right. Yeah. So um, I was, uh, like I said, I was on the JET program and my undergraduate degree is in textile chemistry, which is a weird degree in itself. Um, I got a scholarship to the College of Textiles at NC State University. And so basically you study uh, polymers and fibers and the science of dyes and finishes and how to make fabrics and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of a, it's kind of a unique uh, degree. Uh, but uh, people that you know ha- have that degree, they go on, they they become managers in dye houses, they become PhD hmm. chemists in big um, textile companies. But at, at that time in the in the late 90s, a lot of jobs were moving out of the state and out of the south and um, down into Mexico and over to China and stuff like that. And plus, I did the year of Japanese study, so I wanted to, to come to Japan. So I, w- I came on the JET program, and during that whole time, I was like, all right, how can I use my science degree and do something kind of unique and, and interesting? So this is what I was thinking. I was watching a lot of a lot of videotapes. There was a rental place right near my apartment in Japan, and I would go and I would get the X Files on VHS, and I would just watch them pop them <laughs> in one after the other. And of course, in the X Files, they bring in forensic experts. Mm-hmm. You know, Sully is is a doctor herself, so we were just I would just be I was like, oh, that that would be cool. Like, you know, I could take take my chemistry degree and then you know, like do something with forensics. And I was thinking because I did textiles, like fiber analysis would be cool, you know, like looking at, hmm. you know, fibers under the microscope and all that kind of stuff. So I started looking at degree programs in the U.S., like master's degree programs. And there were only a handful at the time. This is around 2000. And most of them were um, on the East Coast. 
and except there's one in Los Angeles at California State University, Los Angeles, which is not UCLA. It is a much smaller school. But but anyway, they had a master's degree in criminalistics. Criminalistics is another word for forensic science. And so that would be cool because I could be closer to Japan so that my wife would be closer to her family and and all that. So I enrolled and got in and started doing degree program in forensics criminalistics at Cal State LA and then graduated and I got a job at the Los Angeles Department of Coroner Medical Examiner as a criminalist. So when you try to enter the field of forensics, you don't really have a lot of ability to, you know, have control of where you go or what section mm-hmm. they put you in. It's all about the need for the laboratory. So there are like Los Angeles Police Department has a crime lab. The state of California has a crime lab. You know, Los Angeles Sheriff's has a Hmm. crime lab. And the Los Angeles Coroners has a lab. And when you go there, of course, they're studying death and the reason that people die. And so it's mostly toxicology, post-mortem toxicology. So you take a blood sample, you test it, you see what kind of drugs or poisons are in their system, you write a report. And then the medical examiner makes a decision whether or not it was a contributing factor to to the death. And so that's what I started doing. And it really wasn't that I really liked it or not. It was just that was my job. And so Hmm. you get just out of repetition, you get good at your 10,000 hours or what have you. At the same time, we were going back probably every year to Japan to visit my wife's family Mm -hmm. and my family as well, because I have family here. And um And so I would just like pop into like forensic medicine departments just to kind of for a visit and be like, Hmm. oh, this is I work at, you know, California and Los Hmm. Angeles coroner's department, one of the biggest coroners in the world. And um, I would do like a presentation and, you know, give them my business card and things like that and just say, you know, Yoroshiku onagaishimasu, please take care of me, that kind of thing. And then, you know, kind of out of the blue, one day I got an email and it's like, hmm. oh, Brian, this is Professor Kubo at uh, Fukuoka University. And you came here and gave a talk. And we were wondering, would you like to come work for us? And I'm like, hmm. and that's and that was the moment. It was like, I was like, wow, this is this is our chance to move back. And yeah. so I, I moved here in um, April of 2011. Well, we moved in March of 2011, one week after the big uh, hmm. earthquake and tsunami, mm-hmm. which was oh. a big uh, a big to do. Yeah. And then my my job was assistant professor in the forensic medicine department at Fukuoka University. Hmm. So that's what I do. And I and it's almost the same kind of style of work as is what I did in Los Angeles. I do forensic toxicology. Um, hmm. A neat thing is I get to participate in the autopsies now. So I'm in the autopsy room. I'm taking pictures and collecting samples and doing little tests to the side and things like that. Interesting. Yeah. And I've been doing that. You know, since 2011, so for over 10 years. And that's entirely Japanese? Well, yeah, for the, I mean, like, the good thing about, you know, being an academic is I can do all my research and write my papers and do my presentations pretty much in English. But my communication with uh, my coworkers and, you know, when I'm in the autopsy room, I can't be yelling out English. People be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) So there does, there does need to be a, you know, a, a level of Japanese. Hmm. But to say I haven't had problems would be it would be underrating it. I have had problems. I've had had miscommunication issues. A lot of it is just kind of cultural stuff. Like I just, I, hmm. I, I didn't understand my place or, you know, that kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, that took, that took uh, several years to kind of, to kind of realize. And that, but now I think it's, it's pretty smooth. I know my role. And then, you know, I've kind of got a system down. And so, yeah, I'm enjoying it. And hopefully I can just do this for the rest of my career. Is it hard to adjust to like more of a Japanese work style than versus like the American? Yes, definitely. Yes. <laughs> I mean, of course, you know, every, every it seems Japanese like an obvious yes. <laughs> <laughs> every Japanese uh, workplace is going to be a little bit different. But um, the Japanese, they do put um, kind of a premium on on working hard and uh, working long hours and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And so even now my, you know, my official job hours are from 9 a.m. to 5.45 p.m. And it's a rare day that I leave the lab before 6.30. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. And hmm. it was even worse when I first got here. They've kind of relaxed it a little bit. But um, there were times, especially when I was uh, doing a lot of research and my kind of my boss was kind of breathing down my neck to get some papers and stuff written where I'd be at the mm. lab, you know, until like 9, 30, 10 PM. That was hard. Mm. But, uh, but now it's kind of, I'm on more of a, I definitely wouldn't say autopilot, but, but I've got a system down and mm. we have an understanding about, I need to have my family time and that kind of thing. And so, and, and look, it's, it's all about getting the work done and mm. if you get it done. There's no way that they can really complain about that, right? Mm. Right. And is this on a university campus or in a university hospital or is it separate? Yeah, Foucault University does have a university hospital, but um, we are in the medical department, which is kind of the building right next door. Mm -hmm. So a lot of uh, the doctors that actually do a lot of work in the hospital, they have their offices and stuff in the medical department. Okay. Mm. So, um, you know, forensic uh, forensic autopsies are um, an important part of, you know, the social protection of the Japanese citizenry. Mm. But we're not part of the hospital. If someone dies in the hospital, they have a pathology department that, that does the autopsies mm. for mm. them. And forensic autopsies are um, have to do with the law. So, for example, mm. if someone mysteriously dies or is murdered or, uh, you know, there's going to be some kind of legal aspect to their death, that's what would become a uh, forensic autopsy. Mm. Interesting. I think we've covered only about half of what we set out to cover with Mr. Brian Waters, told you. Dr. Brian Waters, <laughs> correct myself. Um, but uh, I think we should move on into a couple of other things we've got here at the end. One of them is a, uh, a quiz for Brian. This is a bespoke Brian quiz, a bit of a nod to Ishikawa Summit to see, famous for their quizzes. And um, Mark is also in the dark about this quiz. So Mark, you can All play right. along or commentate. Here we go. Question number one for Brian. What's the best, most accurate, flawless in your book, crime scene procedural drama? And your choices are A, Bones, B, CSI Miami, or C, Bones and CSI Miami. (laughs) (laughs) Brian thinks it over. You know, if I want to get the answer correct, Uh (laughs) I'm going to have to say C. (laughs) Oh, both of them. Oh, they both nail it. (laughs) Or at least they're tied. (laughs) Um, Actually, it's funny. Forensic shows are are kind of a source of of uh, humor for any working forensic scientist Mm -hmm. because, Mm. uh, of course, they have to exaggerate and they have to make it so Hollywood. Mm. And so when CSI first came out, my colleagues and I were just kind of like. This is so funny. Like, look, they're pulling a, uh, a DNA report off of a gas chromatograph. That's not even the right machine. You know, we were getting like that. Classic. Classic gaff. Yeah. Classic gaff. Yeah. And then and then the fact that, like, the forensic scientists themselves are, like, questioning suspects. Mm. I'm like, oh, my God, that would never happen in a million years. I couldn't even imagine being in the same room with the suspect. <laughs> But, you know, they're funny and they're, you know, they're good. And, you know, a lot of the techniques that they use, actually, you know, of course, they have consultants who are professionals in their fields mm. and stuff like that. A lot of the techniques that they use are valid techniques. And they just, uh, it's just cool that they, you know, that they like, oh, you could see how the bullet went and entered the right temporal and then split. And then there were two exit wounds and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, that's incredible. <laughs> So it's not so much that both of those shows are incredibly accurate, more so that they're both equally inaccurate. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, I didn't even answer the question, did I? No, I, just, no. I just, C, just said C. C will suffice. Know. I've never seen any of those shows, full disclosure. All right, question two. How many times a week do you get to say spatter? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Zero to ten times. B, eleven to a million times. Or C, over one million times. Well, I mean, 
I get to say it as much as I want to. So I'm going to say over a million. It's a free country. Especially when I sing my spatter, spatter, blood spatter song. That, uh, <laughs> There's half a million right there. Right. Because I'm just constantly singing that in my head. But, uh, but no, as I said before, I'm not a, um, you know, I'm not a crime scene like reconstructionist or I'm not a police officer here in Japan. So I wouldn't be going to um, crime scenes and looking at blood spatter or commenting on it. Um, mostly what I do is uh, in the laboratory with, uh, you know, blood and urine and doing toxicology tests. Mm. So mm-hmm. the only blood spatter is when, you know, my pipetting technique is not quite right. <laughs> and I blood spatter some blood on my, yeah. uh, my lab. Yeah. <laughs> I got spatter so all over I, my I have time. to say zero, zero to ten. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, question three. Fantasy autopsy. You can only choose one. A. Andre the Giant, B, Rasputin, notoriously difficult to kill Rasputin, uh, C, Mr. Fantastic from the Fantastic Four, who's very stretchy, or D, Robocop. <laughs> well, I think uh, I think if I choose D, I would have to kind of be more of like an electrical engineer or a mechanical engineer than a, than a forensic uh, specialist, so I'm going to have to go with uh, C, Mr. Mm. Fantastic. I yeah. mean, that would be incredible to see you know, what the heck is going on. Yeah. Speaking of Andre the Giant, mm-hmm. though, I'll give you uh, an interesting little anecdote. Not Andre the Giant, but have you ever seen the movie Big Fish? Yes. Yeah. Okay, there's a there's a giant yeah. in that movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the actor that played that giant, mm-hmm. he died in Los Angeles County, and he came to our office and... Uh, hmm. and was autopsied now i wasn't in the autopsy but i just happened to be on the autopsy floor that day and i saw him on a gurney mm-hmm. on an autopsy table hmm. and he is huge he was i don't know how tall he was i think he was like seven five or something like that mm-hmm. or maybe even taller than that um but he couldn't fit on the table his head was kind of off of the edge of the table his knees were up kind of at a weird angle oh, wow. it was it was incredible to see. So seeing Andre the Giant on an autopsy table would be an incredible thing. Yeah, but you've nearly... Hmm, I want to see how big his organs are. They had to be huge. Yeah, liver especially. <laughs> liver, yeah. Andre did like 100 <laughs> beers in a go, I think was his record or something. He's a crazy man. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would have been amazing. Yeah, I'm changing my answer. Not C, A. Andre. Andre the Giant. Andre. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'm no baseball fan. This has been well established, but yes. in 30 seconds, this is no multiple choice, just free response. In 30 seconds, sell me on baseball. I'll give you a few moments to collect your <laughs> thoughts. A few moments to collect your thoughts, and you can go in three, two, one. All right, think about this. The distance from the pitcher's mound to home plate is 60 feet, 6 inches. And it's been that since almost the creation of the game. Now, of course, you've had moments where hitters have been really strong. They've hit a lot of home runs. It's been you had, you know, years where pitchers are really great and they have a lot of no hitters and strikeouts. But to have a such a consistent game over the course of the hundred plus years of baseball, it's such perfectly laid out that you haven't had to change that basic the distance from the pitcher to the hitter or the distance Mm. from home plate to the bases. And you can still have a competitive game where, you know, the runs are like three to two or, you know, even if it gets crazy, it's like, you know, 10 runs or something like that. I mean, that's just amazing. Like just the mathematical perfectness of the baseball diamond and all that kind of stuff is what makes me love the game so much. See how I appealed to your nerdiness? That was good. You (laughs) read my nerdiness and you uh, honed in on it. Uh, we have a um, an NBA Finals promo that we're going to layer in just right on top of that. I think the timing will sync up perfectly. Uh, <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> no, that's, that is very interesting. Perfect. It's it's always amazing to me when nobody's cracked the game and the game's been out there for, say, a century or something. And nobody's cracked it to where it's like, oh, yeah, it, this team always wins 50 runs to, to whatever, you know. And just to have something go on right, and on yeah. like that, it shows that you've hit that equilibrium. It's like, you know, well, I guess anything that survived long enough, like chess or baseball, I guess the major sports will be that way. Weren't the Yankees like that? Everybody hated them because they were so good. Yeah. 
I mean, they've won the most uh, World Series championships. I'm a Yankee fan, by the way. Ooh. Are you a baseball fan, Mark? Uh, no, I'm okay. not a sports fan in any realm. All right. I, I must probably miss that. I didn't know that about No, Mark I, I just talk about my board games and cycling. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, board games. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm NBA and chess and zero of anything else. I, like, shut it out uh, on purpose. <laughs> so I'm pretty exclusionary that way. That's cool. You focus in on what you like and the, to the exclusion of all others. Exactly. Exactly. It seems healthy. <laughs> to hell with well-roundedness. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Question five. One characteristic of a fiber can be that it might have two different indices of refraction. The difference between these indices is called blank. The refractive index. Ooh, I was looking for birefringence. Oh, birefringence, yes. All right, question six. Actually, um, I haven't studied microscopy in a long time, but when when you have a mechanical microscope, Mm -hmm. and which has the illumination underneath... Uh, it's usually a light bulb mm-hmm. underneath the microscope slide uh, stage. Uh, you have to uh, calibrate it using a method called Kohler illumination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I don't anymore, but um, when I was uh, in the midst of my my forensic uh, you know, studying and getting my master's degree and stuff, I used Kohler illumination a lot as my password for a lot of different websites and stuff because no, that's so nerdy that no one would ever <laughs> no one's gonna ever that. <laughs> would ever guess that that's a good idea yes. even the nerds making the bots to crack passwords are not going color illumination <laughs> that's right <laughs> well chosen. not not until now not until the bots hear this yeah. this, po- yeah. this podcast now it's on their list all right this is the last question um strangely it's about american football Standing six feet, three inches tall and weighing 320 pounds, this 13-year NFL veteran played for the Kansas City Chiefs and the New England Patriots before retiring as a Dallas Cowboy in 2014. He is a six-time Pro Bowler and a member of the Kansas City Chiefs Hall of Fame. Who is this two-time first-team All-Pro offensive guard? His name is Brian Waters. Ding, 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 ding. Nailed it. Wow. And if you go to Google and you type in Brian Waters, <laughs> you nothing about this uh, weird forensic scientist and book is going to come up. It's all going to be this the best offensive guard to ever play the game, Brian Waters, which I'm happy for because yeah. it gives me a little bit of anonymity. Exactly. Well, I don't know if there were really right or wrong answers to the quiz, but the quiz is over and I think you passed it. No, I miss birefringence. I can't forgive myself for missing birefringence. I get a failing grade just for that one alone. Yeah, I I was wondering (laughs) if that one would leap. I actually I googled like uh, forensic medicine final exam, and then I found a bunch of PDFs that were like Q and A, and then I uh, just looked for a long nerdy ass word, and that was the question. And that was the answer. If my, if I'm sure she's not, but if my, uh, my uh, master's degree uh, professor uh, is listening to this, Kathy, I'm so sorry for letting you down. <laughs> she would kill me if, if she knew I missed that question. She'd be like, "I taught you better." Yeah. <laughs> well, um, that is the end of the quiz, and uh, I understand that Brian, you brought a lot to the table today in terms of J-pop's segments. I did. I did come prepared. Japanese of the day, is that right? That's right. So Japanese of the day, this is a word that we can use it for my children. And the word is kikoku shijo. Hmm. So uh, I'll give you the kanji breakdown. The key is kairu, to return. Mm-hmm. Then koku is kuni, okay. so country. Mm. And then the shi is ko, so child. Mm-hmm. And the jo is woman, onna. Mm. So that's four kanji, kikoku shijo. Mm-hmm. And it literally means returnee children. It refers to a ch- children of Japanese who have lived overseas for a time or were born overseas and then returned to Japan at some point. Mm. So hmm. returnee children or returnees. And uh, a word that goes along with that is kai gai shijo. Kai meaning ocean, umi. Mm-hmm. And gai meaning outside, soto. 
and shijo, same shijo, and that means overseas children. So, for example, if uh, a Japanese businessman who has two kids has to go to America to work, then his kids are kaigai shijo while they're in America studying, and then when they come back, they're returnees or kikoku shijo. Interesting. I've taught classes before, um, occasionally at you know a smaller conversation school uh, in past jobs that I've had, they would have a class specifically called a returnee class. And uh, those kids are really interesting to work with as an English teacher because they're native speakers, but they're all six. And then you're having these fully Mm. native conversations with six-year-olds and uh, trying to, it's just such a departure from what the normal, you know, sort of like grammar drilling and that sort of thing that you teach in a regular class. So uh, I fondly remember my returnee students uh, so like you can make really good connections with them as well. Just if you don't, you know, speak fluent Japanese, that's when you're going to have the best connection with the kids, I think. You know, it's really hard for um, when I lived in L.A., we there were a lot of those types of families like Japanese businessmen that were over there working. And my kids and their kids were friends and all that kind of stuff. And um, they really have to work hard in order to keep their children's Japanese and kanji up. Mm hmm. Because especially if the kids are a little older, then they're going to miss out on like some real important educational building blocks. Hmm. So when they come here and they're kind of thrown into a Japanese classroom, which can be kind of, uh, you know, intense at times, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times they will be behind and it'll be hard for them to catch up. All right. Well, um, what were the words one more time, just to recap? Kikoku Shijo and Kaigai Shijo. Thank you for doing the heavy lifting on Japanese of the day. Nice. Also, you told us before that uh, in the spirit of dad jokes, you brought a few jokes, but you're going to upgrade dad jokes. And what are you going for? All right. These are Norm jokes. Perfect. So Hmm. uh, I'm not sure, Mark, how you feel about Norm MacDonald, the late, great Norm MacDonald. But uh, Jeff and I have established that we love him. and, um, And so not only are these Norm jokes... These are Norm chess jokes. Whoa. So hmm. Get ready to have your head explode. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not going to do a Norm voice, but just imagine that <laughs> it's being delivered as Norm. Only Norm can. All right, here's the first one. Chess players think checker players are dumb, but I love playing checkers. Plus, the red ones are tasty. <laughs> In Norm's voice, it's much funnier. Classic Norm. <laughs> All right, you're going to love this one. Well, this week, world chess champion Gary Kasparov defeated an IBM computer in their six-game chess series. Experts are calling the encounter between chess wizard and supercomputer historic because for the first time ever, it brought together both geeks and nerds. (laughs) Can I just add that 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 would have been Kasparov versus Deep Blue round one, which was in 1996. In 1997, they had a rematch and Deep Blue won that rematch. That was when the computers took over. And I guess the nerds officially beat the geeks. I suppose the balance of power shifted. So I can I can date that joke to the year. Wow, that's that's great knowledge. And speaking of that, here's joke three. On Wednesday, world chess champion Gary Kasparov tied Deep Blue, the IBM supercomputer that can examine 200 million positions per second in the fourth game of their six-game series. Earlier in the week, Kasparov admitted that he made a catastrophic blunder in Game 2 when he failed to force a draw by moving Rook to E8, opting instead for a Karo Khan defense that soon transposed into a Pribble defense, which, after Deep Blue moved Bishop to E7, gave him the advantage with his ninth position. With all due respect to Mr. Kasparov, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> in a norm voice, that's a great joke. <laughs> I can imagine that SNL (laughs) bit. Here's the great thing about Justin. He knows exactly what he was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Uh, You know, we can't devote precious podcast minutes to it, but uh, I would love to talk about both those Deep Blue series, you know, after we hang up here. (laughs) Uh, Once we go off air. Wonderful Norm stuff. And those were from... SNL, weren't they? Those were weekend update jokes. The last two were the the mm. the, the first one the, about the chess and checker players. That was on his uh, Norm McDonald podcast. You know that oh. at the end they do those silly jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
That was the, that was the show he did with uh, Lauren Michaels. Oh, okay. SNL guy. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And Lauren laughed hard at that one. Yeah. <laughs> I will sometimes watch compilations of just the blue card jokes. You know, just get two hours of those <laughs> oh, jokes yeah. under your belt. So good. It's so great. <laughs> it's a rich vein. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think that brings us to a conclusion here. So thank you very much, Brian, for all your insights and all your hard work on those segments. We much yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thank you it. for joining us today. Thank you, guys. It's so fun. And look, I'm telling you, this uh, this podcast, you guys aren't getting the credit that you deserve. You guys are really, really uh, doing a lot of good, hard work and people who, even people who don't have children who are maybe years away for having children they should listen to this and and get a lot of good wisdom and stuff and Hmm. and one thing i really love about your podcast you guys don't do crazy stupid like accents and stuff you just speak with your regular regular voice this is so refreshing yeah is that a jab that's (laughs) here that's the g-pop's guarantee um you won't hear us like um What's his name on Ishikawa Summit to see puts on that ridiculous accent? And, uh, yeah, what's his name? I yeah, can't I know. But in real life, totally normal. Gets on the podcast, plays it up. I don't know. Anyway, uh, thank you very much, sir. And we will talk to you again soon. Yes, thank you very much. All right. And I want to say thanks again to Brian for joining us today. Uh, We hope this week's episode was informative and interesting. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us on Twitter at jpopspodcast or by email at info at thejpops.com. Talk to you next time. Autopsy time.